Hey everybody, welcome to the Pachistics Podcast. I'm your host, Gary Andriano, and with me is my co-host, Alvin Rapian. Hi. Introduce yourself, Alvin. Hi, I'm Alvin Rapian, like you said. <laughs> um, I am an MTS student at Bright Divinity School in Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, that's connected to Texas Christian University. I'm in my second semester of my first year, and I am really looking forward to having this conversation with you, Gary. Me too. For those of you who don't know, Alvin and I have an interesting past together. Um, We were both uh, writing our own theology blogs on Tumblr. Um, Alvin, what was the name of yours? Oh, mine is uh, thepoorinspirit.com. Was it the same when it was on Tumblr? Yes. So So you had that name for a while? I think I've been blogging for close to five years now. It'll be five years in uh, a few months. Yeah, that's been a long time. Yeah, yeah. I started blogging when I was still a progressive evangelical. So yeah, yeah, it's been quite a journey blogging through that. And I and I was um, a contemporary on Tumblr, and mine mine was called Biblical Muse, and I was right. on, I was on the very very right, uh, conservative, fundamentalist, King James only, Bible believer. Those are the best kind. <laughs> That's the best kind. And uh, so Alvin and I were on completely different sides of the spectrum. You were you were big into the the whole Greg Boyd crowd. Yes. Right? Yeah, I was. Um, yeah, open theism uh, types of like process theology was very interesting to me. Were you uh, ever like? Did you ever dive into the whole God is not omniscient thing? Were you? Did you uh, ever I, arrive there, or were you just? I did not necessarily arrive there fully. It was more of uh, I, know, I think how open theists posit it is that the future isn't a an object of knowledge to be known since it does not yet exist. Therefore, God does not know it. Uh, obviously, that still clashes with classical theism. So I was kind of playing around in that camp a little bit. I didn't know um, if I necessarily was fully in it, uh, but it was appealing to me at the time. Mm. Yeah, for me, yeah. the uh, my time as within the whole fundamentalist crowd began as I began as an Arminian, and then midway through mm. became a Calvinist, yep. and uh, so I was big time into Calvinism and had my own articulations of it, and and then funny enough. I'm becoming Orthodox, and Alvin is now Orthodox, and we're we're both in the middle on the spectrum now. <laughs> yeah, it's very very odd. Uh, so I I, I want to hear more about how you kind of came to Orthodoxy through that particular camp um, of fundamentalism. Uh, it's always interesting to to hear about the different theological shifts that occur, especially when you know it's something very dramatic like that. Mm-hmm. What what is a problem for a lot of people when it comes to theology is is they identify with it on a very deep level. Um, mm. So like changing it becomes, in a sense, changing oneself. And for me, theology was always very separate from myself, almost on an intellectual, um, abstract level. So if someone disagreed with my theology, I, I would never like get too upset about that because I saw it as you know the realm of ideas. But um, that objectivity allowed me to kind of just search for myself the different doctrines and right. to really just side with whatever is the most um, intellectually coherent and 
mm-hmm. biblically consistent. And um, I discovered orthodoxy kind of indirectly through my diving into N.T. Wright. Oh, man. And <laughs> he he was featured in a YouTube video about hell. And he tells a story about him being in the Sistine Chapel with the Greek Orthodox priest. Mm. And he says that when, when the you know the priest was looking around and looking at the Western iconography, he was saying, like, I understand that, I understand that. And then he looks at the, the mural of, like, the Final Judgment, and he says, I don't understand that. Like, that's how you in the West, you know, came up with that doctrine. And so that kind of piqued my interest. And so I, I wanted to really discover what the Eastern Orthodox Church taught on the doctrine right. of hell. And when I, that's when I kind of discovered Ancient Faith Radio and mm. started listening to uh, Clark Carlton's Faith and Philosophy series. Mm. And he, he talked about, you know, hell as the glory of God and all, all this, this stuff. And that just was really a light bulb moment for me. Mm. It, it made all sorts of scriptures just come off the page that I didn't necessarily see before. And that illuminating moment kind of led me on a rabbit trail of researching what the Orthodox Church believed about different topics. And over time, I just really found myself convinced of the Orthodox answer to pretty much every topic. (laughs) So, uh, yeah. And I really, um, um, after Dr. Carlton's podcast, I encountered Eugenia Constantini's Mm. And that really um, sparked a love for the fathers. And it really was the first time I saw that knowing the the patristic texts are really essential and r- really diving into um, the hermeneutic of of what the church taught. And that that's something I never saw before. And Eugenia is definitely the one who uh, who sparked that for me. And she's really the inspiration of the website itself, so that that was a huge benefit for me. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting that you mention right as kind of that turning point, <clears throat> because where I was going more liberal in my theology, um, he was actually drawing me more to be a little bit more conservative in terms of uh, reading scripture, in terms of its historical context but also taking uh, Paul's assertions and the gospel's assertions about um, its underlying Christology um, and its implied theology regarding uh, God's dealing with uh, Israel uh, very seriously. Uh, and his res- what, what was fascinating to me is his responses um, to various types of um, liberal theologies. Uh, uh, I, I don't fully, uh, how do you say, I don't fully par- uh, participate in those circles anymore because uh, Wright is usually dealing with more of uh, sometimes Protestant questions. Um, but I, I agree with his pointing to the Eastern Church on certain topics. That was definitely helpful for me. Yeah, um, especially in his eschatology in particular. Like, exactly. Yeah. yeah, his whole emphasis on, um, you know, uh, the end times really being heaven uniting with earth. Right. Like that, that overlap. Um, yeah. That was really, really illuminating. Yeah. And I mean, that's, I mean, that's, you know, that's orthodox. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It is amazing. Uh, I actually have a volume of uh, uh, orthodox essays that deal with uh, Paul. 
uh, it's called, I think the entire volume is called In the Footsteps of St. Paul. Mm. And it, uh, interestingly enough, is uh, N.T. Wright was invited to give one of the, the lectures. Uh, so mm-hmm. it's his, his acceptance into orthodoxy, or at least in some orthodox circles, is pretty interesting because even like hierarchical figures uh, within orthodoxy see N.T. Wright as someone who does bridge that gap and does have a lot of overlap with orthodoxy. Yeah, I mean, some some uh, Anglican priests, like um, there's one, I think his name is Father Michael McKinnon. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he, he, I was listening to one of his podcasts and he said that he basically, the reason why he's not orthodox is because he considers the Anglican church as essentially the orthodoxy of the West. So, I mean, I don't know if all Anglicans identify that way, but that could be a reason why Anglicanism in its theology is often so close to orthodoxy. Yeah. Yeah, I know there's been some debates, um, but there's also been a a decent amount of ecumenical work, uh, particularly in the mid-20th century between Anglicans and Orthodox. So uh, we don't see much more of that. Uh, I think it's because of uh, Anglicanism has definitely allowed a little bit more variety in terms of belief. But it is interesting to see that there are still some figures within the Anglican communion uh, that um, resonate with orthodoxy. Yeah. So, I mean, for you, fanboys. <laughs> <laughs> for you I'm, I mean, you're coming from open theism, so naturally yeah. N.T. Wright would be, you know, on the conservative side for you. Yeah. But, but for a fundamentalist, he's, you know, on the liberal side. Yeah. Yeah, those... Uh... Those people in the middle, they can be uh, very intriguing, you know, for people on, you know, on the polar opposites. So. Yeah, they're either intriguing or they're shot by both sides. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's it's difficult to really walk that line, I think. Yeah. But I think it's important to walk that line, um, and yeah. I think it's important to do that uh, within orthodoxy on certain topics, uh, because um, if you try to make certain things within uh, theology you know, do or die, you're going to tend to alienate a lot of people when uh, those debates, you know, are still going on within the church itself. Uh, so, yeah, I, yeah, like you were saying earlier, you and I both identify as uh, kind of middle of the road uh, in terms of um, orthodox theology. Uh, I don't don't want people to think that we're liberal, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah. but just that we emphasize that their orthodoxy did not come to be you know, straight fallen from heaven, but right. it was developed over time, you know, ecumenical councils. Those were not uh, as clear cut as they, as some people make them out to be, that those developed through some messy controversies. Um, right, yeah. But that's kind of like the nature of the, the game of being human. It's, uh, it's a little <clears throat> messy sometimes. Yeah, definitely the em- emphasis being on that, looking at things critically, like is, right. that's really... Um, I think that's really what you and I are about, um, that critical approach to things, because nuance is difficult. It's very easy to just be simplistic in your approach to anything. You know, um, like even just saying the fathers say blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. It's like that's simplistic. Well, which fathers? You know, not all of them agreed about everything. Or the canons of this council say blah, blah, blah. Like, well, what are the context of those canons? Do they still apply to our culture, you know, or, you know, the whole controversy over the origin anathemas, you know, the 15 anathemas against origin. Like there's a lot about that. (laughs) Yeah. 
Um, so like there's a whole lot of effort that needs to be put into these topics that I think I think most people aren't willing to put in that effort. Yeah, I think it really comes down to for me, this is the topic I always emphasize is interpretation is mm -hmm. the Orthodox and Catholics as well are usually so critical of Protestants for not interpreting the Bible correctly uh, through a certain lens, either through tradition or through the church fathers or through some type of framework that we believe is the correct framework uh, to under understand the scriptures. But then when it comes to ecclesial literature and patristic literature, it's really easy to fall into the same mindset of, well, this is what it says and that's that. Um, that doesn't need any type of quote-unquote interpretation. But in fact, we, all, we are always interpreting. We are always participating in some type of uh, application. Uh, but, you know, just how in the New Testament, you know, there was this implied understandings of slavery um, that don't apply to our culture today. We have to be able to understand how to culturally interpret certain texts uh, for a certain time. And that's not to say that we're falling into relativism, you know, that that's the extreme of it, that, you know, anything goes. But what we want to do is try to preserve the the essence of what is this text trying to convey? Um, what is this teaching trying to convey? And how should we understand it within our context, given that these circumstances have changed? And I, th I think that's really the heart of understanding fundamentalism and liberalism, no matter what religious tradition you identify with. Uh, um, and we, we both have um, coming from certain backgrounds, you know, Protestant fundamentalists or Protestant liberal, those are just based on interpretation of how you apply certain texts. Um, and we also see that in Orthodoxy and Catholicism as well. And just in religions as well, you see that in Islam as well. So um, the discussion about interpretation needs to be opened up more. Um, and I think that will clarify what we're doing with texts when we're citing them, um, whether those texts be biblical, patristic, or ecclesial canons. Yeah, I think the cool thing about us here today is we both represent two sides, like both sides of the spectrum, you know, right. like because of our backgrounds. And I think the irony or the, the poetic justice is that you, you are now in an extremely liberal school and I am in an extremely conservative school at Liberty University. And we're both like face palming our way through <laughs> the very content we used to hold. Right. It's, it's uh, really interesting. Yeah. So I, I want to hear about, um, your kind of experience, um, without necessarily, you know, pointing any particular fingers at any particular professor or whatever, how you kind of work through that now or reading that material that we, that you, that you used to hold to. Um, it's difficult and I, I definitely, any chance I get, I critique the content. I don't think I'd, I'd get through college if I wasn't able to do that. That's what gets me through the assignments. But yeah, I definitely like my, my spin is to really focus on, almost in an apologetic sense, like criticizing the course material through my assignments. So, for example, if, you know, like I, I'll get a, a book from Douglas Moo and his interpretation of history and his textual criticism in my, in my assignments, I'll do something like Douglas Moo says this, this and this, but here are the, the flaws in that argument. And so I'll, I'll put a, like an apologetic spin on it. 
And, you know, like I mentioned to you in uh, messaging that I'm just a natural idealist. And it's very hard for me to just stay put and bow your head and play right. the game. Yeah, we're too rebellious for that. I, yeah, I am. Act <laughs> the part. Yeah. And, you know, 75% of that is my own sin. And 25% of that is just my personality. It's a good balance. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, like, like there'll be quizzes and tests, like multiple choice stuff. Like, I forget which... Um, which classes they were about. Like, the question itself would literally be something like, this wrong view of this teaching says, like, and then, like, the the options would be, like, the, like this, that, that. And then, like, at the end, it's like, they're all compromised positions. And then, like, <laughs> that would be the right answer. So it's, it's very much not an objective perspective. It's not like, here are all the views, and here's what people think and stuff. It's this singular interpretation is correct, and everyone else is either compromised or heretical. It's yeah, it's definitely biased. I know within my context, uh, there I go to a, um, a liberal Protestant divinity school, and there is a movement towards trying to be more uh, ecumenical or inclusive, uh, and that usually means some type of grappling with. Catholic texts or patristic texts. And I know even in some of my theology classes, we went over some Orthodox texts, which is pretty nice to see. But what is frustrating is how some of my colleagues would approach those texts and not given a sufficient context in which to interpret um, these authors. So, for instance, we had one... Um, reading from a theology text, an orthodox theology um, text uh, regarding, I believe it was Trinitarianism. And the the author of this text, uh, he referred to the, the divine liturgy. And it's really hard to understand what was going on within that text without understanding the liturgy. So for me, it's this, and it's in some of my classmates um, um, were asking me, you know, what is, you know, what is he referring to here? Um, what is his attitude here? Because it could come off as very um, alien and foreign to those not familiar. I mean, you and I both coming to orthodoxy as converts, mm -hmm. it was a little bit of a learning process in that. But what's frustrating is they just sometimes assume certain things, that they just import some of their Catholic understandings into orthodoxy when that isn't always necessarily the case. Um, even though Orthodoxy and Catholicism do share a lot, there are some obviously major differences. So interpreting theology in terms of liturgy, Orthodoxy means you know something a little bit different than Catholicism. Uh, particularly the issue was the notion of guilt within liturgy and within Catholicism. Uh, so one of my classmates brought up how Catholicism imports notions of guilt within confession, and therefore you're guilty before God, etc., etc. Uh, I'm not sure whether or not that would be a fair reading of Catholicism. I mean, you can get the same thing in some uh, Protestant texts. But then didn't you're reading an Orthodox text that uses the same type of discussions about God the Father, and then they import some of those notions. So it, it's a little bit frustrating because you know, it still gets caricatured, Orthodoxy does, um, even though it is appealing to some people because it has that mystical aspect to it, 
mm-hmm. thanks to you know uh, Lossky. We we even read some Lossky in that theology class as well. So it, it's trying to trying to navigate through how does orthodoxy relate and find its voice among these this wide variety of Catholic and Protestant voices. Uh, that's it's really hard to do whenever orthodoxy doesn't have this uh, the well. Like it's not as well known as Catholicism is in terms of its uh, the contours of its theology, so it just gets a lot of uh, a lot of people approach it as if you know it's just another version of Catholicism. Yeah, Catholicism of the East. Right. So it's it's hasn't been so bad in in terms of dealing with the literature. Uh, a lot of my classmates are tend to be fairly liberal, which doesn't bother me uh, because I don't do theology in such a way that I try to make it antagonistic towards others. Um, I try to listen to what they're saying. I try to listen to their arguments. Um, even though I come out radically different than them, orthodoxy has, is going to have to deal with these voices um, and deal with uh, liberal Protestantism because it's such an important aspect of how Protestantism is developing in America, especially with uh, grow the growing movement of um, different understandings of God within Protestantism. So it's, it's a lot to navigate in terms of dialogue. It's uh, basically essentially what I want to get at is how do we dialogue now? And it's really hard to do given the variety within Protestantism and you have to understand all the different voices that exist within Protestantism before you can even really address some of those issues and how they relate to orthodoxy. Yeah, it's... I mean, with every denomination, it becomes more difficult, right? Right. Yeah. So I think, yeah. So, I mean, orthodox criticisms of Protestantism, I find I find it interesting that there's like this uh, tension a little bit uh, that we blame Protestants for having so many denominations, yet we all treat them as if they're one monolithic group. So it's just kind of being aware of our own critiques and then developing those critiques. Yeah. I um, I also have... Um, I'm familiar with like Pentecostalism and like charismatic churches. I've attended, I've attended churches like that for a number of years. So, and I've also been through Presbyterian churches and Brethren of Christ. So like I've, I've been through an, a number of different denominations and have explored yeah. the theology and the overall worldview of, of each of them. So that yeah, I could never really get into, um, Pentecostal, more charismatic stuff though. I always found that kind of abrasive towards my personality. Oh, so definitely. It's a, I found it, it's an find it fascinating. Nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like I, I grew up in the Assemblies of God Church and I was pretty young. And then later on in my teens, I attended Fire Church in Concord, North Carolina under um, Dr. Michael Brown. And yeah, I mean, I, I always had an issue with some of the overall lack of discernment in those traditions. Like, I've always appreciated their willingness to engage people and, and pray over them and all that. I like that. Um, but they, it was very much a Christianity without guardrails. Right. It's, there's no mechanism in place to really test the spirits to see whether they are from God. It's always assumed that everything is a work of the Holy Ghost and that nothing is a, is a work of Satan. Like, yeah. like literally you could do anything and, um, you could put a Christian spin on it and just say it was the Holy Ghost and yeah. people would believe you. And that was a real turnoff for me yeah. because I'm just not 
Like, I'm not just not one to just accept something and not question it. Just, <laughs> yeah, I am. Just because, like, something isn't true just because you say it is. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, that, that was my biggest hang up with that. But I am familiar with it, so that is a benefit. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, uh, the only really communities I was involved with before my turn to orthodoxy were uh, low church, Baptist churches. Uh, a little bit more uh, how I would refer to them as like rock and roll uh, Christianity. Very much sometimes playing music uh, along with people who didn't necessarily find it necessary to be in a church home or they kind of, you know, kind of did their own thing while still maintaining some type of Christian spirituality. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, and then I went to more of a progressive um, gathering, I guess you could say, um, not really sure if it was a church and that's when I was like fully steeped in my progressive thinking in terms of theology. And it was just very weird. Um, yeah, no direction, um, without guardrails, but the personality was a little bit more tame. So you kind of could just really believe almost anything. I remember, you know, there was atheists, um, you know, I was talking to in some of these progressive uh, gatherings and it just was normal. You know, even though they didn't believe in God, they still kind of went. So I'm not really sure if that's necessarily a good thing or a bad thing. I don't want to make any judgment calls here, but it was a little bit different, uh, to say the least. <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah, just navigating those waters about Christian belief in uh, without guardrails, like you were talking about, but in a more liberal setting. I find it fascinating, especially in contrast to orthodoxy, where there's a long history of trying to maintain right belief and right practice. Um, mm -hmm. That took a little bit of adjusting because you know, the process was a little bit more different, um, especially in terms of how we understand authority. And I think that really has a lot to do with uh, postmodernism. Um, yeah. It's really, really about how we understand um Authority, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, it's not the main thing about postmodernism, but it is something of a major shift that you see uh, within individual understanding and how they relate to authorities. Definitely. Uh, so countries that didn't go through uh, the same type of enlightenment questioning that you know, Western Europe and uh, that America inherited, um, you still see some type of respect for authority even though, you know, it, it's really hard to do with globalization and postmodern uh, nature of globalization kind of being um, pushed on to to those type of countries that have traditional understandings of authority. So, I mean, I mean let's take, you know, ideas of the president right now, um, whether it was eight years ago or whether it's the president now. I think it's extremely fascinating that people are so vocal um, to talk down the leader of the, the nation, um, whether you're a Republican a few years ago or whether you're a Democrat now, how that's very strange to do, you know, to question authority. Um, just kind of fascinating. Yeah, I should um, also mention I forgot that I was perhaps uh, for the, the longest time I was in uh, the Calvary Chapel movement. So that it would be like avoiding the elephant in the room if I didn't mention that. <laughs> so I was in that for like 13 years. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, so I also have a background in that. Oh. It's crazy. That's uh, it's quite a mix you got there. Yeah. I mean, not orthodoxy. Yeah. Yeah. 
but I I'm so glad I I had that exposure like diverse exposure because it it gives me a more nuanced approach to different types of protestants and right. you know a specific knowledge of of how just like a, a base knowledge of like what they believe and you know how to approach the conversations of theology and whatnot yeah i think it's it's um it's good you know like you were saying to have that background because it's so easy to kind of approach all conversations the same way if you find out someone is uh, Protestant um, within Orthodoxy, you know, you, right. you assume certain things about their beliefs, uh, which may not be true for that tradition. Uh, you may assume certain things about their worship that aren't true about that tradition. And you can totally talk past each other because you're not being sensitive to their context. Definitely. And I think it's important to uh, keep that in mind. Uh, what, what's really helpful for me is my priest in Arkansas. He had he was Protestant and then he was Roman Catholic and now he's been Orthodox priest quite some time. And he was really good and he is really good at navigating between those different types of belief systems and how to address uh, certain contexts. Um, rather than trying to give a generalized answer for everything. So mm, that's good. But it's also hard because you can't be familiar with everything. Um so right. It's going to take all types of different voices, um, different people and different experiences to really address how orthodoxy relates to uh, the various denominations within Protestantism. Yeah, well said.